Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is uh, January the 24th, 2014. This is episode 1287 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for your calls through the Think Line. Now, if you pick the phone up right now and call, there won't be anybody answering that phone. You get a voicemail, and you might be on next week's show. That's how this works, because it's a podcast, not a radio broadcast, meaning it's pre-recorded and available 24-7, 365 at the Survival Podcast. You can get every episode all the way back to episode one if you want to dink through one at a time, or you can get them all, all 1,287 of them. I'll tell you how to do that in convenient dip, zip files in a bit. Anyway, uh, if you call in, call from a quiet location. Don't call from a vehicle with the window down. If you're using a cell phone, make sure there's a couple bars on it. Ask your question and then give me your details. Follow the format you'll hear in calls today, and your odds of getting on the air do go up drastically. I'd say 40 to 50% of calls that come in get on the air, uh, which means 40 to 50% of them don't. So if you don't hear your call after a few weeks, you might make the call again, and the odds are pretty good at that point that you'll get on the air. Uh, with that, before I take your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. I've got two sponsors of the day for you today, like always. Sponsor of the day number one, BulkAmmo.com. You need ammo. You need it in bulk. That's the way it works. If you don't have it in bulk, you don't have much of it. If you don't have much of it, and when you need it, it's not there. And then when the price goes up, you're unhappy and you're sad. And then when you really need it, you're really put out hard. So get lots of ammo because it's part of the triangle of gun operator efficiency. You want to be a good operator of a weapon, you need a weapon. you got to have a gun. No gun. doesn't matter how good you are. doesn't matter how much ammo you are. Have You're not going to be able to do much with it. Um, you need... Training. You need to know what you're doing. You can't just pick up a gun and be an expert with it. Uh, most of us, uh, what we're actually shooting for is constantly striving to become an expert, knowing we'll never really be as good as we could be. That's that's the training aspect. But let's say you're really good. You've got lots of training. You've got a gun. You've got no ammo. You know what you have? An overpriced club. That's what you've got. So whether you need it for training, whether you need it for putting meat on the table, whether you need it for defending your family, whether you need it for barter in a grid-down long-term scenario, you want lots of ammo, the best place I know to get it at great prices and incredible fast shipping, BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. The sponsor that's been with us now over five years. Their uh, five-year recognition plaque's actually on the way. I'm really excited to see that, make a video for you guys and show you what all sponsors will be getting as they hit their five-year mark. Um, we have quite a few of them hitting it this year, but nobody went first other than Safe Castle. They were the first ones. All the stuff you need for your prepping ready to go. Go to their website, check it out. They've got all kinds of great stuff. And, hey, if you have need of any type of a hardened shelter, uh, they also do those as well. You can find out more information at their website. Best way I know to tell you guys to get the Safe Castle's website is actually to go to a kind of a weird-sounding URL, prepared.pro, prepared.pro. But if you can think of it from long-term uh, storage food to tactical to practical, if it's where you're prepping, they probably have it at Safe Castle. Check them out today. Prepare.pro. The best way to visit BulkAmmo.com, Save Castle, and all of our sponsors is to go to the uh, SurvivalPodcast.com and click on their banners or links. You'll see there. Um, next, I want to uh, tell you about our recognized uh, MSB discounter of the day. Um, both Save Castle 
And Bulk Ammo, by the way, do have special discount packages for you in the MSB. Safecastle gives away their lifetime discount membership club value at $49, which pays for your entire MSB. Um, but I have a lot of people in the uh, discount club that are not official show sponsors. They're just sh uh, supporters through the discount membership. Today's featured one is Nodak Arms. They provide 5% off all ammo. So you have another option for ammo there. This is reloaded ammo, by the way. And 10% off all customer-provided brass reloads. Now, I want you to think about this. A lot of folks, you go out to the range, you shoot, you got all that brass, you take it home with you, and you think, one day I'm going to start reloading. I think you should start reloading sooner rather than later. But for right now, how can you use that brass? Well, the way Nodak works, you send your empty brass to them. They do your loading for you and send it back. Great deal to begin with. Great way to save money on ammo. And they'll give you 10% off all your orders through the MSB. So check them out today. Again, Nodak Arms, N-O-D-A-K Arms. Um, you can find Nodak Arms, our two sponsors today, and many other people in your member support brigade area if you're a member. Um, it's about 18.3 cents an episode when you do the math to become a member. You get all these great discounts. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. Uh, so it's a great way if you want to get all of the shows all the way back to 2008 uh, and do that pretty quickly. And there's a lot of other really cool stuff when you join the MSB. Support the show at about, call it 20 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount to that program if you email me before, not after you join. Service discount in the subject line. And uh, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I will get back to you with the discount. One or two sentences, guys, not your life story. Don't need all that. Anyway, so got through the uh, beginning of the show, the, uh, what do you call it, the housekeeping, as we call it. Sorry if I sound a little bit off. We had some stuff go on this morning, and I'm a little distracted, but I'll do my best for you today, as I always do. Anyway, uh, time for our history segment. The year is 1287. And Alex's segment I'm going to read for you today is The Little Dutch Boy Loses His Fight with the Dyke. With the rise of the sea level in the North Sea and a massive storm surge, the waters have breached the dikes of the Netherlands, drowning 50,000 to 80,000 people, swamping lowlands, submerging islands, and expanding what once was an inland sea into a shallow bay. St. Lucia's Flood is the sixth largest flood in world history, coming one day after St. Lucia Day. Zuder Zee means South Sea. And its expansion will cause the Baltic commercial trade to move its operations to Amsterdam, which until this point was not much more than a fishing village. Under similar circumstances, the North Sea Flood of 1953 will cause extensive property damage, but will kill fewer people. 1,836 in the Netherlands and 300 throughout England, Scotland, and Belgium. Um, Alex's take on this is it's important to mention that the North Sea Flood of 1953, since it covered a similar area, But this time they were better prepared. No doubt these practical, there are practical studies on the subject available, and such storm surges are well known in the United States. And the most recent was due to Hurricane Sandy, the second most costly hurricane in U.S. history. There's a lot going on with this one that we can take some knowledge from, such as, you know, every time we have a major hurricane, something like a Hurricane Sandy, the global warming people go, see, it's climate change. And, well, I don't think we were dealing with CO2-caused climate change in 1287, do you? I mean, that was the sixth largest one in the history that we know of, of the world. If you believe in the Great Flood, then maybe it's the seventh largest one, right? So 
there's there's that. There's also what Alex pointed out that's really important. Because of modern preparedness, even as lax as some people are, the, the, what you really had most likely that saved so many lives in the 1953 flood over there was foreknowledge. Foreknowledge that this storm is coming, get out, something that a lot of people in New Orleans had a hard time comprehending. Well, there was nobody there to take me out. Okay, at some point you have to take responsibility for yourself. But the other thing is the modern technology to get out. So in 1287, you would be getting out either on foot or horseback. Today we have cars and planes and trucks and all different ways that people can move faster and move larger numbers of people. So that's something to think about as well. But to me, the biggest thing is the foreknowledge. The fact that we have weather forecasting today that says not just a storm's coming, but this storm's going to be really bad, and here's what it's going to do. And if you're in this area, you need to leave. The real lesson there, though, isn't when they tell you get out, get out. Now, that's something that if you haven't figured that out for yourself, I don't know that this will change your mind about that. Um, the real lesson, though, is the value of foreknowledge. Not just with storms, but with anything. So when we look at our economy, the lesson here is foreknowledge that major shifts are going to happen in the economy and all of the different things that are on precarious edges in the economy allow us to be less likely to be financially killed simply due to the foreknowledge. That's my lesson in history for you guys today. And uh, I will put a link also to the year 1287 in Wikipedia in the show notes for those that want to know more about that year. I did not get to talk to Alex yesterday about the idea that I have for him. So we'll see if maybe we can do something next week that I think will be really cool if Alex is on board with it. Anyway, before I, uh, I take – or actually, before nothing. Uh, at this point, it's time to go ahead and take your first call. Again, I'm sorry if I'm a little distracted today. Hopefully, um, I will do better for you as we go through the show and I kind of get into a rhythm. Hi, Jack. This is Dylan, Angus Bangus from the Forum. Uh, moving on to some new land, uh, right at an acre, and there's a low-lying area that catches a lot of water. Uh, I would like to some uh, information on some plants that I could plant there. I'm thinking cattails or something like that that uh, would uh, soak up a lot of the water that I could also use to throw uh, as fodder for chickens uh, or, or just some other useful, uh, cool plant. I always learn about all kinds of crazy things from uh, from you. Uh, again, it's holding an inch or two of water, but it, it seeps in after a few days. And, uh, you know, I can't build a pond there. I've tried that, but uh, the uh, the commanding officer at the house says no go. Anyway, looking forward to what you have to say. Thanks for all you do. Talk to you later. Commanding officer says no pond. I wonder why. They might have a deeper conversation about that, and please, for the love of God, tell me that it's not because she's afraid of mosquitoes, because it's called a fish. If you're afraid your kids are going to drown in it, build it shallow enough that if you stand up, you're not under the water, and teach your kids about water. Otherwise, I don't know what the objection would be, but it sounds like the best use of the area would be a pond, but I'll just go with the fact that that's not an option for you right now. Um... Depends on what you really want to do here. If you want to dry the area up a bit, the way to do it is actually with trees. Trees are hydraulic pumps uh, and would help the area be less wet, period. Uh, a new tree, you ask for something kind of different that I found in my research, though, that might work in this area, it's called water locust. It's a flood-tolerant nitrogen-fixing tree. It's found along the Mississippi River. It's a pretty rare tree. It's found out through the uh, southern U.S., but always next to rivers and streams. 
and it's one of the few trees that can really tolerate standing water, especially in southern locations. Uh, it's got really hard wood like any locust, and it has a lot of the value that any locust tree would. And uh, it does offer some fodder potential. And people that are worried about locusts um, spreading and shoots and all, my experience with locusts has been, and, and Ben Falk has backed this up for me, that they only do all that when the soil is constantly disturbed around them. When the soil is not disturbed, there's not a problem. Uh, and if you're running like some sheep or whatever, they're going to eat anything that sprouts up anyway. So that would be one thing. Cattails would certainly work. Um, some things that would might look neat in the area but aren't really going to do a lot for you from a standpoint of fodder would be like any of your elephant ears. Uh, they'll do really great there, and they'll be big and beautiful. Um, another thing that would do really well for you in that area would be bamboo. Bamboo can tolerate that all day long, and bamboo is a functional and useful plant. Um, so bamboo you could put into that area, especially clumpers, and get a lot of usable material for other locations. And if you're doing anything with sheep or, or goats or, or small cattle, they'll eat the leaves off the bamboo because bamboo is essentially a grass. You also have potential then to harvest bamboo shoots. So that would be you know, another thing you could do. You're probably in an area where you're never going to get a banana harvest, but a good hardy banana plant will live just fine in that area and produce a lot of biomass. And then the leaves can be used for cooking, like for steaming fish and for other things that you could do with them. Um, people talk about making tamales. I don't think you really make a tamale with a banana leaf. You use corn husks, but you can make a tamale-like thing. Uh, there's also something called the torta, I think, that they use for banana leaves. You can wrap pork in banana leaves. You can steam fish in banana leaves. So that would be another multifunctional element that could go in there. Um, you can look at some emergent aquatic vegetation that would do there. You could put chufa in there, um, and your birds will love the roots. They, it's a it's a sedge, so they're not really going to really be interested in the green at all. The problem is that can become quite rampant, especially in an area like you're talking about. But if you go in there every year toward the end of the season, pull up your chufas and put your birds in there, uh, they'll pick up the majority of it. Those are some things kind of off of the top of my head that you could do with a moist area. The other thing you could do, okay, a pond's out, what about a patty? Why not make a rice paddy out of it? Uh, build in the ability to let it flood and drain. Um, dig it out a little bit. Build your barrier. Put it a couple inches of standing water. Throw some dadgum mosquito fish in there so I don't have to hear about mosquitoes again to the point where I want to blow my brains out over mosquito fears. And uh, start growing rice. And, I mean, if Ben Fall can do it in Vermont, you can certainly do it where you're at. So, you know, like an, an, an kind of an upland rice, too, where you don't have to keep it constantly flooded would work. See, rice doesn't need to be flooded to grow. The whole point with rice is that it will grow when it's flooded. So you can suppress weeds with flooding, and the rice will stand the, the wetter conditions. So really, flooding with rice is more about building fertility and suppression of weeds. Uh, but rice will grow without being flooded. So this natural flood and drain system you've got going there, you could turn it into a, a decent rice paddy as well. Those, you know, I, I'm kind of running running low on steam at that point of different things. I think you, know, you could pick one or a combination of those things to work with. Now there are, you know, members of the, you know, kind of the elephant ear family, I guess, like taro, and you can grow taro there if you have a long enough summer to produce your tubers, and it'll do quite well. But um, taro root, while edible, does have to be processed a certain way, so you'd want to learn about that before you did it. 
Now, that would be another option that you could put into a multifunctional system there. Assuming that there is anything for it to climb on in the area, some vining climbers would do fine with the, the, the periodic flood and drain because they're not going to get totally suffocated out because they have enough vegetation up out of it. Uh, so things like maypop and passionflower, as long as there's something for them to be trellised on, would work for you. And if you did maypop in your climate, you'd probably get some passion fruit off of maypop. Uh, so that would be something to consider. Marshmallow uh, would grow well in that area. So that would be another thing that you could put in there that you could get a yield on. The root and the leaves both have a yield. Um, there's a plant called Chinese Mountain Yam, and it, it it's a, a vining tuber. I think it would do well there. It might be something you try more toward the edge of this area. It takes about two years. It's a perennial tuber. It grows about three feet long. It's like a big potato underground. And the vine grows up, and the vine has all these little potato thingies that are about the size of a big marble all over it. And you can actually eat those as well, or you can use them to propagate more plants. Again, that's called Chinese mountain yam, and you can find that available from a company called Oikos, which is uh, O-I-K-O-S, Oikos Tree Crops. Uh, they have that that available. Uh, I would also say that groundnut should probably be able to handle that moisture. I see groundnut all the time in the Northeast growing along creek banks that are constantly saturated. So there you go. I mean, groundnut, and when I'm talking about groundnut, I'm talking about Apius Americana, which is a, a tuber as well. Uh, it tastes sort of like a cross between a potato um, and a uh, water chestnut, and it's a very, very healthy food to be eating. So there you go. That should give you some idea where to start. Let's take another call. Uh, yes, this is a question for Jack. Uh, I need to find out if I can retrofit my SKS, Russian-made, from a clip to a magazine. Um, details are... Uh, I, I'd kind of like to use a 30-round uh, mag, uh, banana-style clip uh, magazine for, for my uh, SKS. I don't know if that's going to be uh, something that's uh, possible to do. Uh, I've looked online. I cannot find any kinds of uh, information that would give me that I could do this. Uh, it's a. Uh, I know I could use a, a clip that uh, uh, that slides in through the top to, to load it with, but I would rather have a magazine, multiple magazines for it, and uh, I was just not sure if I could retrofit uh uh, the, the banana style magazine to a uh, SKS that uh, takes a clip. Uh, anyway, thanks for your help. Uh, I'll be listening for your answer. Thank you. The, the short answer is you can do it. It has been done. It can be made to function well. Sometimes it works. Often it's very complicated, ends up being quite expensive as an experiment, and doesn't function well. And you probably shouldn't. Those are those are the long answers. The, there's a couple things that we can look at doing here. One is we can trade that SKS in and buy an AK if that's what you really want. I mean, yeah, you're going to be out a few hundred bucks. You know, you might get a hundred bucks used for an AK as a trading gun. If you're lucky, depending on the, the conditions. So Russian made one, you might actually do better than that. That would be the most desirable of the SK patterns is the true Russian made SKs rather than like the Yugos or the Chinese or what have you. Though I'm a big fan of the Yugo versions. Uh, those things are a beast. They're heavy as all get out. 
Um, so, but, but if that's what you really want, the truth is, if, if you want to be able to swap mags and, and, and run a weapon that way, the SK is not the platform to do it in. Again, it can be done. You can look up all different things. You can find people on YouTube that have successfully done it. Most of them are kind of gun guys that do lots of gun projects that have a lot of tools and kind of know what they're doing. And they don't mind the fact that once they get it done, they have to fiddle and fart around with it for quite a long time to get it tuned up and get it functioning. And even in those communities, I've seen people say, yeah, it works, but every once in a while. And it ain't ever going to be as reliable as an AK when you look at slapping mags into it. It just isn't. And it's it's heavier, it's not the same platform, it's just not designed to run that way. Now, there is some things we could do without, let's say, butchering your SK. And one is you can buy 30-round uh, magazine wells that are designed to work, loaded from the top with stripper clips, exactly the way that the weapon's meant to run, except they have much greater capacity. That is an option. I will tell you that if you practice with stripper clips, you can reload an SK with at least you know the, the rounds that come on that clip faster than you can probably swap a magazine. It, it's a reasonable reload time. It definitely is. It takes a little practice, but so does magazine swaps. Um, and it has some advantages. The clips actually do have some advantages uh, when you when you look at it over a magazine. A clip, of course, being... Uh, an expendable part that doesn't actually end up in the weapon ex with the exception of maybe the M1 Garand. So what, what we're talking about here is the SK uses stripper clips. You have rounds on a little piece of metal and you take them and you shove them into the magazine well from the top so you have a fixed magazine and a disposable little clip strip that the ammo is housed on. You can get quite quick with this. Um, will it be equivalent to an AK. Ballistically, yeah. Functionally, no. So you're in a situation where, at best, I would consider in increasing the capacity of the weapon versus trying to change the functionality of the weapon. I've heard mixed reviews on you know, the extended magazine wells is the best way to, to describe the, this. Um, some say they don't function well. Some say they function great. I think that's another thing where you might end up with something not quite right, doing a little filing, a little fiddling around with. But I'd much rather do that. And I'll tell you, the beauty of that is that it's a drop-in part. And if it doesn't do what you want it to do, then you can put it right back to the way it was, and you're fine. And you're only out a few bucks. You know, I think 30, 40 bucks is what these things cost. I would not go to greater than 30-round capacity with one of these, and I would think strongly about the fact that you really need to go that high in capacity. The one thing about you know loading a magazine well with stripper clips, it's going to get harder as you get more full with a higher capacity. When you're shoving you know the last five in there, it's going to be much different than just dropping one stripper clip into a, a, a factory magazine well. Um, but it can be done, and it can be kind of fun, but there, it's just a different weapon. The, the SK was never built for the high rate of fire capacity that the AK is. When you shoot an SK, it's a different experience. It's nothing like an M1 Garand, really, but it feels more like an M1 Garand than it does an AK to me. Uh, it doesn't have anywhere near the recoil of the M1, but the, and especially a Russian pattern or a Yugo pattern, uh, heavy, the heavy versions versus the really light kind of chintzy, uh, Naranko Chinese versions. They have that heavy thump. They're a great gun. 
They really are. And I am not a purist where I get all upset if somebody sporterizes or customizes a military surplus weapon, especially one that's in, you know, low demand, high supply, um, you know, like a Mosin or something, especially if you choose one that's not quite as nice as a collector grade to do some stuff with. I don't get all upset about that, but I do think that we can ruin a weapon, that we can actually make the weapon not function as good as it did if we left it alone. And, and my experience has been with looking at SKs that take magazines that almost everybody that did it would be better off in the end, even financially, trading up to an AK pattern, whether it's an AK-47 or going to an AK-74 or whatever. That you, if that's what you want, you'd be better off with that. Um, I kind of liken it to 22 long rifle conversions for your AR-15. In the end, if you really want to practice with 22 long rifle, you'd probably be better off buying a 22 long rifle or dedicated uh, rifle that's built on you know the AR pattern, but it's really a 22 that looks like an AR and functions like an AR, rather than trying to run one of these conversion kits. The reliability isn't there, but at least with that, you're not altering your AR platform. You've just got this conversion kit you can probably sell to somebody else if you end up not liking it. Here, when you go into doing a complete conversion to where we're going to now be expected to be able to install AK-47-style magazines into an SK, we've actually altered the weapon in a way that may adversely affect its performance, period. And, and it just, to me, doesn't make sense to take a damn fine, well-functioning rifle like an SKS and, and, and lower its functionality by trying to make it look cooler, which is kind of what you're doing there. I know that you're thinking, well, if I can put those magazines, it actually does function better, but not if it doesn't run and cycle right. Whereas an SK, when run the way it's supposed to be run, is about as reliable as an AK. It won't, it won't run at the same fire rate. You know, it really won't. And if you're good enough to run an SK at a really high fire rate, you're probably good enough to run an AK at a higher fire rate. But when it's just top fed, clipped, used the way it was meant to be, it's one of the most reliable and bargain priced platforms available. So if you really want an AK, consider buying one or, or trading up. I wouldn't alter this weapon. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mark from California. I had a question for you regarding relocation. When you moved from Arkansas to Tech, back to Texas, what areas, what websites did you look at? What, what kind of stuff did you look into before you made your final decision? We're looking at moving somewhere in the Midwest, Texas, Kansas. Besides city data and realtor.com and great schools, what other websites did you consider did you look at? I appreciate the help. Thanks. I kind of have to answer that question other than the where did we look as far as online websites um, part with what I did versus what I think maybe you should do because my situation was maybe different than most people planning a relocation. One of the beautiful things about relocating is often that when your real estate agent says, where do you want to live, and you say, I don't care. Um, here's the parameters I'm looking for. I want to be X miles or, or more or less from uh, a town of at least this size, and um, that's it. Or I'm looking for you know the side of the state where it rains or, or something like that. But you generally have a pretty big target, which is good and bad. 
it's bad because when you're looking at property, you're running all over the place, which we did. Uh, but it, it's, it, that free thinking, you might be running a lot further. And it makes it hard. You know, you'll spend one day to look at three houses, and I'm talking like eight o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the evening. And that's hard on a real estate agent. It's hard on your relationship with a real estate agent. It's hard on your relationship with a partner. Because since you're not, see, it's so different. The conventional real estate. Conventional real estate is generally, well, I want to live in, in this city. And not only do I want to live in this city, I want to live in this part of this city. In fact, I'm really looking in these, these subdivisions or this school district or one of these two school districts. Uh, or not even the district, but one or two schools within a district. The school might have 10, a big school district might have 10 schools. You know, 10 middle schools or 10 high schools. Um, some of you are like, really? Yeah, and yeah, in, in some cities. Or, you know, a school district might have two or three high schools. And parents will often, I want my kids to go to these schools. So, that gets a very tight focus and you end up looking for, you know, three or four bedroom houses and subdivisions. And real estate agents are really good at that. But when you're looking to homestead and you're not married to anything, you know, as far as, you know, what school district or what have you, then, then that makes it a little bit harder. Now, let's talk about my move and, and some of the impetus behind it. So we ran our grand experiment of going to Arkansas, which was very, very affordable, a very beautiful place to live, lots of peace and quiet, good neighbors, a gate across a mountain road, and really being in a place where I felt like if the shit totally hit the fan, I wouldn't care. I mean, that's really where I was. We had places we could get to on four-wheelers to go to harvest fish, where nobody could get in with a regular vehicle. We had lots of resources. We had game we could hunt. We had, even though we moved up onto this granite mountain, uh, in, in a year and a half, I had it really blown and going with permaculture. And the, the end result then is, well, why did you leave? Because my wife said, I am not happy here. I want to be near my family. So, what do you think that did when it came to our search? We put a pin in a map and said, this is how far around this pin, a pin representing where her family lives in South Arlington, And there's a circle there. That was a pretty big circle. We originally started within a two to three hour travel distance and three of it and really quickly in my, my wife's mind became two and then I want it less than two and then an hour and a half is pretty far. Uh, and we now live about an hour and that works out. So our situation then became I want some acreage. I want freedom. I don't want to be an incorporated uh, subdivision or incorporated part of a city. I want to be out in a county uh, where I can do whatever I want without getting a permit to put up a freaking chicken coop or anything like that, where people either will leave me alone or have no choice but to leave me alone. In other words, even if somebody wants to bitch, there's nothing they can do. If I do something right now, like let's say I put up a coop, let's say my neighbor, who are they're great people, they would never do it, but let's just say it bothered them. Like he has a chicken coop, and they called the the like you know the closest city. And like Azel, they would be like, "Ma'am, we're sorry, we don't, we don't do that. We don't, we don't have jurisdiction there." So then you'd call Fort Worth City, and they'd say, we, "That's not us." So then they'd, you'd call the county, and the county would say, "It's unincorporated. What he's doing doesn't bother anybody really. And even if it does, there's nothing we can do about it. Is he putting a septic system in? No. Okay, then then we don't do that. Goodbye. Don't call us again." Right. Up to the point where we, where we live, if I was shooting a gun, as long as I was shooting it safely, the, the conversation would be, is he shooting it at you? Is he shooting it at somebody else? Is it being done in an unsafe manner? And that doesn't mean you don't like it. Okay, goodbye. Don't call us anymore. So that's that was my criteria. Land I could work and freedom to do what I wanted to do. So that was our whole criteria. 
And we really looked mostly on Realtor.com to tell you the truth. And the one big issue for us is I had to have good high-speed Internet. And there were many properties that were very, very workable that didn't have that. And my myopic moron pea brain of a freaking real estate agent who by the end I only stuck with because she'd been with us through so many property searches could not grasp the concept of DSL or cable internet. Um, in fact, I fired one because of that and got another one who could not get it through her thick head. So your real estate agent is going to be either really useful or nothing but a pain in the ass. And in my instance, I have to say the last couple houses that I've sold or bought, I've had to do the real estate agent's job for them. I've had to deal with an offer coming in that's just freaking ridiculous, and then the agent going, I think it's important that we counter, because I'm like, no, there's nothing to counter. Just tell them to go pound sand. And, of course, then they came back and like, oh, we're sorry, we didn't get it. And, and then we had something to work with. And I had to write, like, go, I'm tired of explaining this to you. I'm going to write a letter. You forward this to the other agent. Don't change a word. Um, so real estate agents can be a burden if you don't do a good job of finding the right one. So that's, that's another thing to consider as far as your agent. Now, I think that the biggest things that you have to look at are, number one, I think many people think about being further out of town, so to speak, than you should. Um, it seems like a great idea. People do it, and they often end up moving closer back in. Um, you lose a lot of community and things like that. Uh, people tend to keep to themselves as you move further out. And you can look around and see certain things that cause that that are not bad things, but necessary, but certainly do have a detrimental effect. My neighborhood around here is pretty good. Everybody likes each other. Everybody's nice to each other. But I can tell you the fact that the fact that everybody has fencing completely around their property, so that it's not like you can walk up to the front door and the backyard's fenced, probably detracts from how often people interact with each other. So I know it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but it's actually something to consider. Now I love it. Because if the dogs have to pee or whatever, open, I don't care, whatever door they're near, I don't have to worry about which door I open it up. And they're very big on security because they have a perimeter. You put a dog in a perimeter fence, fence that goes all the way around the house, and that dog is a different dog. That dog quickly determines, this is my place. You're not coming in here unless you're invited. And there's a great deal of security provided by that with a 130-pound German Shepherd. So I really like the perimeter fence. But if you want more of neighbors walking up and knocking on doors, you know, and we're lucky. We have like our next door neighbor, our one real next door neighbor that we actually have. We actually have a swing gate on the side fence line where you can walk. They can walk into our property and we can walk into theirs. And that was from previous relations with other two different, totally different neighbors. But we've maintained that. And, you know, we give them eggs and occasionally they buy us a bag of feed. So think about the human element here, too, is what I'm trying to get to. Like, The idea I'm going to be up in the middle of nowhere, far away from everybody, seems like a good idea. But even when we lived in, you know, it seemed like that in Arkansas. I had a neighbor straight across the street. I had a neighbor up the road a little bit. I had two more neighbors up the top of the hill. And then I had one way up around the side. So I had six houses and uh, us and a gate. And we had a pretty tight community because of that. We all looked after each other's stuff. We all looked after each other. And, and that's a big thing. And if you go too remote, it's often hard to do that. So, I mean, the reality is the, I have whole shows on finding bug out locations, doing relocations and all. And you can, you know, look those up. You know, finding the rural piece of land would be a, a one title I can remember in my head. Um, 
But really the best thing to do is make a list of what you want and what you don't want. And then try to justify that off against what's available. And what you'll find is you'll never find a property that gives you 100% of what you do want and none of what you don't want. There'll always be some compromises. And I don't think it is even as much a budget thing. Um, we initially set a lower budget than we spent, but when we put the budget up, what really improved was the quality of the house itself. It really didn't change very much the areas, the land size, the usability of the land. And I'll, I'll guarantee you if I had a budget of a half a million dollars, which it certainly did not, I might have gotten a thing that would have been a really like a nicer house or something, but I, I still think I would have had to give up some things. You know, in the end, the big thing we gave up here, I wanted five acres, I got three. Um, and I knew that the ground wasn't quite as usable as I wanted it to be. There's a lot of rock here. But after eight and a half months of searching properties and having deals fall through, having things seem really perfect except having one house that my wife completely fell in love with and I knew it was too far out. And she wanted to make a go of it and I'm like, no, we're not doing this. I said, but I love the house. It's like, you'll love the house for two weeks and you'll hate me again because we're too far away from everything. And so you have to find that balance and that's the most important thing is the balance of what are your must-haves, what are your things you'll compromise. And what you'll often find about your compromises is you'll say, I don't want this, 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 and this. And those six things, if the house has all six of those things, you'll be like, there's no way. I don't care. I'm not doing it. It's too much to give up. There might be one thing like, oh, here you're not allowed to have chickens. Done. Here there's no DSL. Done. But there might be a few other things you say you don't want, but if it's only one or two of those and you can find a way to offset it with positives, it'll make a, a, a go of it for you. I would say, though, do things like go to a town you think you'd like to live in. Rent a hotel near there. Spend a week in the town. If you, if you, I'm not everybody can do that, but if you can, and start to understand the feel of the area. There was you know, an area I considered in Arkansas. I won't even say what it is. Um... But I took a trip there long before we bought our place that we did buy in Arkansas. And I'm just going to tell you that it was too much religion. It was just too much. It was everybody you talked to. Every time you turned around, it was being put in your face. And if you're happy with that, I don't have it against you. But I was like, I really don't want to live here. It's just too much. It's over the top. And it's going to be the kind of place if you live and you don't go to somebody's church And I don't mean their church in particular, but you, you better be going to some church somewhere or you're going to kind of be an outsider is how it felt. And it just wasn't, it wasn't what we were looking for. It wasn't, it just didn't seem like enough of live and let live. So you got to sometimes understand the culture you're moving into because if you're a person that, it, like this, this area, if you're a person that's going to join a good old fashioned Southern Baptist church and go there every Sunday, you'd probably be happier in a clam. You know, in, in, in mud in, in this place. You'd love it. But if you're not, and I'm not, then you probably wouldn't be. And it's not anything about not wanting to be around people of a different viewpoint. It's about not wanting to be in a place where there's only one viewpoint. So that's another kind of social consideration. That's probably as much as I can do. But I can tell you, you know, when you're looking for large blocks of land, lands of, you can do lands of Texas, lands of Florida, lands of Washington, whatever, uh, is a great site. United Country is a great site for finding kind of rural properties. 
But in general, most properties, especially that have a house on them, whether they're big properties or small properties, are going to be on Realtor.com um, and listed with a multiple listing service. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Don in Ohio here. We're thinking about adding chickens to our suburban backyard next year, but we are worried about attracting hawks that might become interested in our 8-pound Maltese. The only reason I even consider this to be a problem is because my dad's neighbor, who lives a few streets away from us, got chickens last year and now has a hawk that sits in her coop on a regular basis. This is the first time she's ever noticed a hawk in her backyard. Now, I see hawks in the neighborhood all the time, and they have never been a threat to the dog before, but I'm concerned if we introduce something that is more along the lines of their standard prey, a chicken, it may look to the dog when it can't get a chicken and is hungry. Just want to know your thoughts on it. Thanks for the show. Well, this is actually a call from last month that kind of fell through the cracks, and I dug it back out. Uh, actually, quite a few of these calls are uh, this week. I'm kind of doing some cleanup. But anyway, this week we had uh, Chris Starr, who is a wildlife nuisance abatement uh, professional and a professional falconer. And um, I had him on, and back when I got this call, I sent off an email to him and said basically kind of like a, a pinch hit on expert counsel. Like, you know, I don't know if there's enough questions to bring Chris on full time, but would you take this one? And he did. And because he didn't let me know, he actually responded. Uh, I He kind of fell through the cracks as well. So I found his answer today, and then I tracked down the original question. And uh, so what you're going to hear now is Chris Starr and uh, his answer to this issue, and I'll come back and give you a few of my thoughts on it as well. Hey, Don in Ohio. This is Chris, a falconer and nuisance wildlife control operator from Texas, calling in to answer your question about hawks, chickens, and your Maltese. Now, depending on how treed your area is will determine what species of hawk you're dealing with, but I'm pretty sure it's a cooper's hawk, a crow-sized bird eater that likes treed areas to ambush prey. Now, the first thing I would suggest would be to get large breeds of chickens. Hawks are inherently lazy, and these birds would be more imposing to them and would give them second thoughts about risking injury to try and take one down. Another suggestion I have is using chicken tractors to manage the chickens. I know this is almost a given, but the tractor would protect them from the hawks, and if built sturdily enough, also raccoons, possums, and bobcats and coyotes, of which the populations are growing in our cities and suburbs. The hawks will try to get at the chickens through the tractor, but after a couple of failed attempts will give up and then view the chickens as not a food source. All of this to make your yard as unappealing as possible to the hawks and therefore lessening the chance of one going after your dog. Now, I'm not sure if your dog has free reign of the yard all of the time, like if you have a doggy door, but if so, I would change this. I would suggest only supervised trips to the backyard as you yourself are quite threatening. To the hawk, you're this huge, giant creature that is definitely going to eat it. So all of this should do the trick. Large breeds, chicken tractors, teach your dog to make eagle sounds as hawks are scared of eagles, maybe groom them to look like a lion, and supervise visits outside. Thanks, Jack, for letting me call in to answer this. Go Chiefs. Well, your Chiefs didn't quite pull it off. Uh, again, I said this is a little bit of an older call. Um, anyway... What I'll add to that is, if there's any type of overhead cover, chickens quickly learn to use it. Uh, there does seem to be a pretty good hawk population out in my area, but I don't see many of them around my individual property very often. I definitely agree with large birds, and I would tell you two large chicken breeds 
that could be a good dual-purpose meat and egg-laying uh, breed to consider. One of the Freedom Rangers, I was kind of blown away with how hardy those birds were, especially as they grew up. Uh, none of the problems associated with typical meat birds, and they definitely get big. Our largest rooster dressed out at over nine pounds. I have two hens right now that just by picking them up uh, that I, I saved out of our, our, our meat birds, uh, by picking them up, I would say live weight is somewhere in the near neighborhood of eight pounds or more. These are the hens, not even the cockerels. Uh, they are laying eggs for me. I'm pretty dadgone sure uh, that they've started, and they're actually laying a little bit more than all my other birds right now, my Rhode Islands and my, my, my uh, sex links, because they're young birds just coming into their egg cycle, and my other birds have backed off because they're, you know, they're much more mature birds now, and we're having these shorter day, and they, it's typical. So I think they're actually laying well for me, and I, I don't see a lot of Cooper's hawks messing with an adult Freedom Ranger. I think they'll do it, but I think that they're going to be, again, less likely to. Um, you know, your bigger birds will definitely do it, but your Cooper's Hawk, I think, will be a little bit intimidated, as, as it was said here. Another uh, breed you might consider for this that's a good dual-purpose bird is a Dixie Rainbow. Uh, those are two breeds you could consider as larger birds. Um, if you just want eggs and you want really big birds, Jersey Giants, uh, would probably uh, be bigger than your dog, so uh, quite a bit bigger than your dog and, and less likely to attract uh, a small hawk like Cooper's. The other thing we have is we have several places that I've set up hog panels like an arch, and the birds do spend a lot of time under there, and I've seen one one hawk take a dive at them, and they were underneath that thing, and he bounced off of that, and I've never seen that hawk again. I think that really kind of threw him for a loop. I don't think that... He realized what he was flying into when he did it, and it kind of sprung and, and happened. And the birds, as they get older, they if they have cover, they will use it. We have a lot of turkey vultures around here. These are huge birds that are no threat to the chickens, but all the chickens know is there's a giant winged thing hovering around. And if you watch my birds, when those vultures come out, uh, they make a beeline absolutely make a beeline for uh, cover. And when they do cross a field, if those birds are in the air, they do it very, very quickly, and they get from one place to another. So that would help. The other option would be to go with very fast, agile birds uh, that might be a little more likely to get to their cover quicker, like Tetra Tints, which is a cross between uh, uh, White Leghorn and uh, Rhode Island Red. Uh, I have one of those. She's incredibly fast. If you can tolerate them, Egyptian Faomis are just about as quick as a chicken I've ever seen. They do lay eggs for you, but I don't like them. But but so, you could go that route if you wanted to. Those are some things that I would add in. Um, I think that you know having a presence yourself out there, and, and your number one thing is a is a chicken tractor. I mean that really is. It sounds like what you've got from this other person bringing birds in is this this hawk that's decided chickens are stupid. Well, they taste good. And I can now make my living here. And that is a problem. That To me, that is a problem when you get that one bird that hangs out there. The occasional bird coming through, um, assuming there's a lot of available prey, will generally prefer, you know, especially when you talk about something like a Cooper's, they'll prefer smaller prey than a full-grown chicken. They just do. They can kill rats, like, easy. You know, I mean, that's like their, their go-to is rats. And small, stupid, young rabbits. That's It's just so easy for them. Uh, and there's a lot of birds available, pigeons and doves and things like that, 
uh, that travel in flocks and, and that they can sneak up on and take out. So uh, take Chris's advice. Take mine for what it's worth. It probably isn't worth as much as it is. And, and do the best you can. Don't let it prevent you from doing it, though. I think we always figure things out if we try. You know, and it's not like you're going to put a baby out there that's going to be taken by an eagle. You're talking about a chicken. If you lose a chicken, you're out a couple dollars. Get another chicken and try another way. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My question is, are you very concerned about MRSA? Um, I don't know that much about it. And I have had some friends recently who have had surgery, and each one of them have had MRSA infections afterwards. Um, you have to suit up when you go into the hospital room to visit them, and it's quite a recovery for them. And one of them has had knee surgery and got MRSA, and then she had a fall and got MRSA. This is two separate incidents. Um, I've had a nurse say that they would not go into that hospital at all, even though it's one of our better hospitals in the area. But anyway, is there something you can do if you're going to have surgery to you know, take care of this problem, to not contract something like this, or is it just widespread? Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, that's an interesting question when you look at the phraseology. So, Jack, are you very concerned about MRSA? I have to answer that two different ways. Am I very concerned about MRSA for myself in my day-to-day -day life that I'll get a MRSA infection? Uh, no, not. Um, I, am I very concerned about the presence of MRSA specifically in our hospital system and how it may adversely affect me if I ever end up in a hospital? And then the answer to that one is yes. Uh, I agree with your nurse friend. I would not go to that hospital. 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 If I had one friend that went into a hospital and got MRSA and then came out of it, and then another friend that went in and didn't get MRSA, I'd say, well, you know, it does happen. But if I had two people that I knew, and I'm two for two with MRSA infection, and uh, I, I'm starting to worry about it, and you say it's one of our better hospitals, if they have a high infection rate from MRSA, no, it's not. No, it's not. It, it, I mean, this is why people say when they, well, I want to go to this school district because they have a better, they have better schools. Better at what? The indoctrination of your children? You know, better at what? How do you define better? If they're safer, that might be better. Uh, if they just have higher test scores per average pupil, it doesn't necessarily mean they're better. Um, so, better hospital, better at what? You know, I'd rather a hospital be better at not infecting me with a potentially life-threatening, hard-to-treat, uh, highly resistant infection uh, that gets into my skins or wounds. That's that's a problem. So, I I mean, before I would even consider using that hospital again, I'd want to know what's your what's your MRSA infection rate per hundred patients on average? What, what I mean, it seems like it's pretty damn high. Now, is it possible? that you just had two people predisposed and you happen to know both of them and, and their MRSA rate is no higher than any other hospital. Yeah, but I, I'd ask that question. And it just tingles all the things wrong to me that one person would know two people in a relatively short period of time that both got MRSA at the same hospital for two totally different things. Um, it, what it comes down to is an overuse of antibiotics yet again. That, that's why we're developing more and more Highly resistant bacterias. And, and that's what MRSA is. MRSA is a, res, is a highly uh, resistant to uh, treatment 
uh, bacteria. It, it actually stands for, and I'm going to screw this up when I say it, metallicin-resistant streptococcus aurorius. Right, that's 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 what this is, uh, a resistant bacteria, and it it is really a nasty infection, um, and it is almost I, I don't say always, but I'd say the highest incidence of being infected with this come from being in a hospital and being exposed to it in a hospital, and I'd say that the best thing you can do is try to avoid hospitals at all circumstances and try to, if you can't avoid hospital, avoid inpatient therapy. If I'm going to go get any type of surgery done, if there's any way that the day that surgery is over, I can have my ass the hell out of there, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do whatever. I mean, there's times when you can't, right? Well, my wife had mycovascular decompression was the surgery she had, which is like, Almost brain surgery is the way they describe it. They actually move your brain stem out of the way and work on a nerve that is in your in your your face. She was in intensive care for two days. She had another two days in the hospital before I could get her home. She was in the hospital a day before the surgery. There's no way around that, um, you know. And we went to one of the best hospitals that you can you can possibly go to in the South, a place called Zelipsky. Um And I, I, I guarantee you they have problems with this too. So it's not like the hospital is just evil because it has this problem. It just seems like a high frequency. So I, my take is the best thing you can do is really ask questions before you choose a hospital about like what are you doing about this? You know, what is, what is your, what is your infection rate on this? And don't believe that they don't know what it is. Don't say, well, we're not really sure. No, you know, right? Um, And, and, and compare that. I mean, that would be a question to ask and make it one of the criteria for determining a hospital. If you have the opportunity, like you have a surgery that has to happen, you know it has to happen, you're picking a hospital to do it in, I would definitely make it a consideration. Unfortunately, there's not a lot that I know of that an individual can do about it. Because you're going into a place with trained professionals doing all they Trust me, no doctor or nurse wants to give you MRSA. You know, it, it, they, they, they do everything they can to be as sterile as possible. Um, but this is a harsh reality. When you go to a hospital, um, you're surrounded by sick people. Generally, you're sick yourself, or you're going to go through a surgery that lowers your immunoresponse, and you're more likely to probably get infected in a hospital than anywhere else in the world. And we need to think about that and how content we are to just simply put ourselves into one and go to one and spend time in one. Um, I think a lot of people think that it's a de desire for profit that makes doctors and hospital administrators so quick to put a person out of the hospital, to get them out of the bed as quick as they can. And I think there's some driving force to that, and if their beds are all full, they can't help the next person. And if a person doesn't really need to be there, why should they occupy the space? But the reality is, how do they make money? They make money when you're there. They charge you uh, uh, literally an arm and a leg to lay in a bed. It, it's incredibly expensive. I think one of the driving forces to let's get these patients the hell out of here as quickly as possible is to avoid secondary infections because you're not going to get a, a hospital infection if you're not in the hospital. So I actually am quite a fan of getting people out as quickly as possible. Maybe someone with more direct experience on this can give us some comments on the blog or call in some comments uh, that's the best I can do for you on this one
Hello, Jack. This is Aaron in Nashville. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a new listener and a member of the TSP Support Brigade. Currently on episode number 60, number 86, as I play catch-up. My question is this. What suggestions can you offer to help me find and filter applicants for a unique opportunity I have to offer? And number two, thinking outside of the box, what steps can I take to avoid potential pitfalls? Here's my situation. I currently reside on eight-tenths of an acre in Nashville. My neighborhood was built on a farm in the 50s. Soil is beautiful and easy to work. We are outside the General Services District, and I'm not bound by any HOA. The grounds could accommodate a food forest, chickens, rabbits, bees, garden, aquaponic systems, and a greenhouse. I would like to do all of this, but I'm a single guy working full-time and raising a two-year-old. As to the aforementioned opportunity, I have a basement apartment. I want to offer this living space to a like-minded individual who has the long-term goal of setting up permaculture systems, running a CSA, or living a more sustainable life. I would finance the projects and pitch in on construction efforts, but the design, maintenance, and harvest would largely fall on the individual, as would the bulk of the yield while they reside on the property. Um, Shooting from the hip, I can really see an individual, uh, much like myself when I was in college, on break, really disenfranchised with the system and not wanting to live in a cubicle for 50 hours a week. People start, it would be a good opportunity for somebody starting out, kind of get free run to explore and learn the systems, develop systems, build a portfolio, uh, maybe do a little trial and error on on starting their new life. And I just don't know where to find such a person. Um, Interested in any suggestions you might have and um, and just any ideas you want to share. Thanks, Jack. Well, I think it's a great idea, and the places I would start looking would be, one, the regional forums on the Survival Podcast, um, which I think the way the moderators have it set up, you might have to do a few posts before you even see those. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Um, it's been so long since you know I would have been affected by my own rules on the forum with post count that I – don't really know where they have that, but I, I don't think so. I think it's like the the barter uh, board and some other things. So I think the regional forums you can right away uh, start finding people in your area and let people know what you're looking for. Often you find people that are not the people you're looking for, but they know somebody you're looking for. You might also consider going to Permaculture Global and seeing the people that are in your area and talking to them. There's a, it's, it's a great kind of like a social networking site. For permaculture, I have some of my projects on there that you can look at, but you can find other people in the area and say, "Hey, I'm looking for someone that would, you know, be interested in something like this," and and that might be a good way to find referrals uh, for something like that. You might consider getting on some of the other permaculture forums. I don't know if Paul Wheaton's forum permies.com has anything like this, but I bet you if you emailed him, Paul at richsoil.com and said, this is what I'm looking for. Is there a place where it's appropriate? I don't want to do anything inappropriate on your forum. He would probably direct you to a place where you could do that on, uh, on his forum. Again, his email is Paul at richsoil.com and, uh, he's pretty good about responding. You might hear from his assistant, but, uh, tell him you, uh, were referred by Jack Spirico and you'll probably get a personal answer, or at least an answer from the assistant says, yeah, you can do that here, or no, we don't allow that. And please, in any forum that you would post something like this, make sure that it's acceptable in that forum before you do. So, because there are tons of young people looking for something like this. But, 
avoiding problems. Um, you're offering to give space for a personal lift. There's a financial value to that. Uh, it would probably not be a bad idea for, you know, not to make a big deal out of it, but for whoever you're giving that space to, to know the market value of this is $350 or $400 a, a month. Uh, and either you're charging them rent, and these are other things they can do if they want to participate, and it's a rental agreement, or you're not charging them rent, and it's a barter agreement. And if it's a barter agreement, then we should have some, some guidelines. And I think that really to do this, long term with somebody and not get in arguments that you need to have a written contract. And so you have this, this idea that like we could do all of these things with this property and you're probably a little bit fragmented. This person could come in and actually do most of the work and do most of the planning and do most of the design. And she doesn't just sound a lot like what I do with Josiah. Uh, where I have an interesting thing where I'm, I'm doing a hybrid here. It's like, I want work done on the property. He's interested in permaculture. He wants to learn all these things, but he's also trying to build his own business. And I'm doing this more as a mentorship, right? Where this you're talking about is more of a true kind of live on farm helper thing. Um, a permaculture internship, what have you. I don't know how well you would do going to wolf, you know, W O O F dot org worldwide opportunities on. Uh, organic farms. You can just look up uh, that, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms, and posting a profile there because you don't really have a farm yet. And most of the experience I've had with Wolfers is they want to go somewhere where things are already kind of there. But, you, you know, you might find something. I don't know. Um, but I would sit down and say, okay, look, if you know, when I'm interviewing this person, I would say, look, here's how we're going to do this. If you're going to come here and I'm going to give you this space, we need to agree right now on a minimum number of hours a week that you're going to be on the property doing something, working. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's 25. I don't know what it is. And it's, it's, it's highly conceivable that that person, if they're actively engaged in doing stuff and loves what they're doing, will do more than that. But setting that floor sets an expectation where you don't feel like, hey, you're not pulling your weight here. And they don't feel like, hey, you're just dragging my ass and want me to do more work. If we sit down and we say, listen, um, minimum, you're going to do... Um, you know, a full day's work, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of every week, and we're going to work together on Saturdays for, for at least four hours, and then they go on about their life and they do those things, then you should be happy and they should be happy. If they're going to be somebody that wants to have a job, a part-time job, then you have to work around their schedule. But there should be some firm commitment to a minimum number of work hours. And if you don't have that, you're setting yourself up for a point where you're going to be resentful of the person or they're going to be resentful of you or both because there's a misconnect on that where if we sit down and we write down a schedule right from the get-go, nobody can be confused. And when I say, hey, Bill, um, I noticed that Tuesday you didn't get anything done and he says, well, I didn't feel like it. Well, you know, kind of this is our agreement. So how are we going to make up that time? And it's completely a reasonable question then, right? So... You you really want somebody that you don't need that with, but you do it anyway as a protectionary mechanism. It also helps you if you get to a point where you're like, you know, this just isn't working out. And you tell the person, look, I'm going to have to make the opportunity available to somebody else. I don't want to be a jerk about it, but I'm giving you 30 days, and I need you to find another place to be. And they say, why? And you can sit down and say, because these are all the things we agreed to. These are all the times we've talked about it. Uh, not quite happening the way it's supposed to. And these are all the times it's failed to happen. 
and I don't feel that you're taking this seriously. I don't think you're taking the opportunity to the level it needs to be, and I'm doing this not just to get work done on my property. I'm doing this because I want to help a young person such as yourself build a portfolio, build a design background, be able to go out eventually and, and be either a business partner with me or build their own concern, and I feel that's a huge opportunity. You're not taking the most of it, so I'm going to make it available to somebody else. And what will happen is in 30 days, that person will either be vacated or will have a massive turnaround and be better than you ever imagined they could be. Because And there's no bitching or whining or complaining or it's not fair or anything else because we've had this agreement right from the beginning. Those are some, like, that's the most important thing I can tell you is whatever the agreement is. If the agreement is, I could rent this apartment for $600 a month. And so I'm expecting $600 worth of work in lieu of $600 worth of cash. Or I could rent this for $600. I'm going to rent it to you for $200, and I expect $400 worth of work. You can do more, and not only that, you can benefit from the work you do. You're going to be eating the food you're producing. You're going to be you know, building a design portfolio and all. But I, I have this commodity that I'm offering to you. And I, I bet you, if you get over to Permies and you talk to Paul to make sure you're in the right place, there are people over there all the time complaining, I don't have access to land. I, I want to do this. I want to learn more. I want to build my skills. But just be careful with that because what you do not want is somebody with a poverty consciousness here. You want somebody with an abundance con conscience that just hasn't found their way to abundance yet. Seriously. You do not want somebody that's like, man, the man's always keeping me down and I don't have any money and I'll never have any money. And it, this just isn't going to work. And, but I want to like grow stuff. Like that guy, you do not want that guy or girl. You want someone that's like, I have a plan for my life and this is the step I need to get there. That, that's what you're looking for. And you may have to talk to quite a few people before you select somebody. When we selected Joe for the internship, we had 38 applicants. And of those 38, 36 were damn good. Damn saw like any one of them probably was selectable and one that wasn't wasn't selectable for a reason that was just they wanted to do it as a couple and I just wasn't going to have that dynamic in this situation it was going to be stressful enough so they were solid too so there was only one of those there's only one out of all 38 that I was like this just doesn't work at all this person just doesn't doesn't get what they're applying to and I'll tell you what else to think about. Don't be married to the concept of this is going to be a young, disillusioned college kid or a young person out of high school that doesn't see college as an option. I really thought that. I thought my average applicant for this internship would be 18 to 22. I'd say my average applicant to this internship was in their mid-30s. People up into their 50s that were good, good, uh, good applicants. A couple younger people, uh, and and you know the applicant I selected, Joe, I think was twenty is twenty nine. So it it may not be what you think. Uh, it could be a returning vet like Joe is. There's a lot of returning vets that can use an opportunity like this. Talk to your you know there's a great avenue. Talk to your local VFW. You don't necessarily need somebody that knows what permaculture is. What you need is somebody that wants to learn and say, look, I can give you DVDs and books and I can be your mentor and I can teach you about this stuff and this is the pattern and, and this is the work you would be doing. Because to them it's just work. And you might have to design the first couple things for them, but as they do it, they start to get their own ideas. Talk to your local VFW, man. 
Do you guys have some young returning vets? Some of them would be interested in this opportunity, you know? Especially a lot of those guys are on a small amount of disability from injuries sustained in combat, but they're still functional. They just, they just have some, you know, some things that are, you know, so they have a little bit of pocket money. It's not enough to live on, but if their housing's taken care of, you know, and they're, and they're, they're involved in a permaculture operation producing food, I mean, that would be any, any veterans organizations. In your area, you could talk to and say, look, this is what I'm doing, and I have an opportunity for one person. This is what it's like. Do you know anybody? And the question to start asking as you talk to different organizations and groups and forums isn't just are you interested, but do you know anyone that you think this might be a good opportunity for? And then don't be afraid to – like when you talk to somebody and you're like, this is pretty good, but I really just feel like this isn't right, trust your gut instincts. If your gut's saying to say no, say no. Say no. And, and the one very important set of questions that I asked that I think you should ask to the people that applied here were, number one, what do you think you're going to get out of this? How do you see this ending? Now, mine had a finite time limit. Yours maybe doesn't. But how do you see this? Where do you see this going? Because if that person is giving you uh, a whole list of things that you're like, you're just never going to get that out of this, that's a bad candidate. And then the other question that was like the most important question I asked. If after a certain amount of time you realize this just isn't for you, how would you handle telling me and coming up with an agreement to how we ended early? When you get that answer, you will learn a lot about the emotional maturity of the individual. And that's going to be something you need in this type of an interaction. You need a person that's emotionally mature. They can be young, but emotionally they have to be a person that's not solely led by how they feel because you're like, dude, you were supposed to take care of building that chicken coop this week. It's not done. You want them to be like, fuck, you, you know. You want the response to that to be like, oh, crap, you know, you're right. I didn't get that done. And they get out there and bust their butt and get it done. You want it to be like, oh, man, you're coming down on me, right? And people that are emotionally immature will often have that other reaction, like, well, you're just, you're just not appreciating me for what I've done. The, the, the person that's emotionally mature will feel like, I made that commitment. You're right. I'm not living up to it. Or they'll tell you flat out, look, um, you're right, but I really am struggling with this one. I'm not sure how to get this done. Or I, you know, I hurt myself recently and I need some help with this, right? I really need to work on a different project for right now. It's a little bit easier to do because, and you can work through that. But what you can't work through is the person that says, I'll take care of it and doesn't, or the person that's really upset that you even brought it up. So those are, those are the areas I would be careful. I'd love to see more people doing this. I think there's a place for a website just for people to find these each other that's not woofing. I think people are like, well, you can do that at woofing. No, you can't. There are so many people with an acre or two or three uh, that want to build these these intensively managed systems or even that they have like a duplex in it and, and they would give up a side of it. Like, uh, like uh, Jonathan Bates and Eric Tosemeyer uh, kind of did it together, but they would be in more of that type of a, an environment that want this. So I think it's an opportunity for somebody to build a site, you know, where people can find each other. And I think there's also an opportunity out there for a lot of people to 
Maybe take the approach I'm trying to do with Permaethos, and we're, we're going to talk to a, a civil engineer about some things, you know. But we're talking about doing this big, you know, 140 family eco village, uh, prepper community, libertarian community, and it may be a lot easier for people to do it in smaller blocks, you know, five people finding 25 acres and each putting, you know, maybe building one big house on it and building off of that rather than trying to subdivide it or whatever. I I don't know, you know, but I think there's an opportunity for people to find land together, and there's plenty of opportunity for landowners that want to convert their land to attract people that want the experience and want the work. Um, with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is David from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was calling to ask if there's something in permaculture or in the broader, you know, survival or prepping uh, with indoor plants. Um, so here's the details. Obviously, it's cold in Minneapolis for about half the year. Um, so I bring some stuff inside. I've got aloe plants for soap. I've got rosemary that I keep going for years and years and years on end. Um, and I have a lemon tree that's beautiful and potted so I can bring it inside. And once in a while, it even gives me a lemon. But I was wondering if, particularly in permaculture, there's a uh, way you could gild something indoors or grow something in odd times of the year or with little sunlight or things like that that really provides a solution for those of us in a colder climate. I'm just curious if you've ever heard anything about that. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Um, yeah, there is. There's actually a ton on this. And one of the things I would encourage you to do maybe is take a look at Jeff Lawton's videos that he's uh, releasing like one a week right now. And you can find them at jefflawton.net, uh, and you spell Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, -F, the fancy European Jeff, not the simple American J-E-F-F, J-E-O-F-F, Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N.net, uh, or .com, either one will go, end up going to the same place. And if you've never been there before and you're not registered, you'll have to register your email address to get access to the videos. There's a ton of them there now. There's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12... 13, 14, 15 videos. The one I would suggest you might look at is called Cold Climate Permaculture. It's on Ben Falk's place when Jeff went up there and toured that. By the way, you'll see him walking on a hoogle mound in that video. Yours truly, Jack Spierko, built that hoogle mound. So I haven't been able to shake hands with Jeff personally yet, but he's walked on one of my hoogle mounds. So I'm pretty happy about that. When you watch the beginning, it's about growing rice and all this stuff, and you might think, "What is? How's this going to help me?" They give you a really good explanation of uh, of Ben's greenhouse and the way that that works there, and that might be highly beneficial. Kind of the the the, the holy grail to how to do this, if you can, is you build a south facing greenhouse on the southern wall of your home. That I mean, that's the perfect way because you can heat it. You can use it to heat your house. It's it's the, probably the best thing. And you could do it on a west wall or an east wall. You could do it anywhere other than you know um, your southern wall. But your 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 I mean your northern wall. Your southern wall would be perfect in the northern hemisphere, of course, would be perfect. Um, and it's not always practical, and it's not always possible. And sometimes it seems like well that'd be a great orientation, but you have a great big tree shading your house that you don't want to lose. And if those trees are not deciduous, meaning they don't drop leaves, they don't have the light coming through uh, in the uh, in the wintertime when you need it. So you have to balance that. But that would be perfect. Greenhouses work, but a detached greenhouse is tough to heat. Um, 
really the way to do this right is to build a greenhouse, a purpose-built greenhouse, that has the ability to have nighttime insulation. You can do this a couple ways. You can basically convert a tough shed. So you go get a, a tough shed of the dimensions you want from a place like Home Depot or Lowe's. You put lots of windows in it to basically make it a glass house. You insulate the walls, and then you do something like on the windows, you put like heavy, uh, you know, heavy, uh, what am I looking for? Shutters? Not really shutters, though. Um, like curtains, but more like blinds. And if you're really switched on, what you do is you wire up some controls, and at night it just automatically closes so you don't have to. That'll keep it from losing all the heat that it's gained during the day. And that'll make it far more resilient and far, and then, you know, in the morning when the sun comes up, those blinds retract. That, and, and then if you have to heat it at all with any type of supplemental heat, you, you get a lot more efficiency. Because if you just set up like I have, like a temporary, you know, uh, springhouse greenhouse, which is just basically a hoop house, um, with no hard walls and no extra insulation, it's very hard even with like a, I have a little supplemental heater in there and I still get things frozen on really cold days. So you have to think a little bit deeper if you want to do it with a, with a, a greenhouse. The other way is having a lot of windows in your home on that southern wall and growing things all in those windows. Most houses, when you look at them, they're not really set up to do that. And the other issue is a lot of the real high-efficiency windows now actually have film that blocks a lot of the UV light, and then plants don't do quite as well in front of them. Uh, another way is to do it more of a sunroom. So that south-facing greenhouse is more of a solarium. Those are great ways to do that. But there's tons of information on this. Another option with a greenhouse is to make something called a climate battery. And a climate battery allows you to get a lot more uh, cool temperatures in the summer in your greenhouse and grow things that are, you know, put some shade cloth over it or whatever and grow things that you are creating a cool microclimate. And it also allows you to create a warm microclimate in the summer. And it works like this. We, we excavate the area before we put in the greenhouse. We dig some holes. We put in pipe. And the pipe you want to put in is like the perforated drain pipes. Okay? And then we stand those so those pipes go in and make like a snake shape. All right, and then they they have two stubs that come up. One comes up high, one comes up low. The high one is for heat in, right? The hold one is for, the low one is for cold in. Okay, uh, just let it be that for now. And what happens is we put a very low draw fan. This would be something that could easily run on one battery and a hundred watt solar panel. No problem. What this thing does, and what it does is when it's hot. The fan draws air from the high pipe that's up high in the greenhouse, which is where the warmest air is. It sucks hot air down into the ground, and it dumps that heat energy in the ground, and the air that comes out of the low pipe is cool. Okay? And we can flip that around and pull the cool air out and bring the hot air back out of the ground. So we can move air into the ground or bring, bring warmth out of the ground. One in the summer, one in the winter. And if we run it all summer, the thermal mass we build below ground actually is very, very impressive. And in, at night then, when we're pulling air back up out of that ground, we're pulling warm air out of the ground. And it doesn't have to be deep. I mean, you're talking in a couple feet or less. As long as you got more than six inches to 12 inches of cover, you're going to get this effect. 
And, and that's probably the, and if you took a southern facing wall of a home, put a purpose built greenhouse onto it, and built a climate battery for it, in all but the coldest climates, you could grow just about anything. There's other ways to improve your insulation too. Like you could have a panel on the outside of the house. So if you just had windows, imagine just a, a wall of windows for your, for your glass house. Not, um, you know, clear head to head ceiling to floor. You've just got a standard wall insulated with a bunch of, a big bank of windows in it to let your light in. And then on the outside during the winter, you hang a shutter system basically, or like a tray. It was more what it would look like. And on that tray, you put in some reflective material like sheet metal. And the light hits that, bounces off of that, and puts even more solar energy into your building. But at night, that tray that's hanging just below the bottom of your windows folds up, covers your windows, adds insulation, and comes down. You could wire that with some type of automation that every day it would lower itself, and every night it would rise it rise itself up. If it was a big greenhouse, you might have to have you know multiple actuators and break it into smaller sections so it's not too heavy. But these are all cool ways to do that. A great book you can get from Steve Harris, if you go to ush2.com, his website where you can buy all his books and stuff like that, and you can get a discount on it from the uh, Member Support Brigade area as well, if you're an MSB member. But there's a book called Movable Insulation. And a lot of it has to do with, with creating movable insulation in your home and improving your energy efficiency in your home. But a lot of it has to do with greenhouses, and all of it can be applied to greenhouses and growing things in areas where you normally couldn't grow them. Another thing you can do in greenhouses to really expand their, their features and usability is put a pond in them. If you have a really big greenhouse and you did something like got a six-inch, a six-foot round or eight-foot round uh, stock tank, especially if you dug it into the ground, even halfway, and fill that with water, all day long the heat that comes into that greenhouse is dumping into that pond. And at night that pond is releasing energy. Now you start taking and function stacking this, put it on the side of a house, so it's actually getting some of the heat residual out of the wall of your home. Your wall of your home is also building up heat on the outside. If it's, let's say, brick all day long, maybe we even have a, 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 a part of that wall we paint black, or maybe we have some water tanks down there that are black, and they're retaining that heat, plus we have a pond, then we have a climate battery. You could probably grow tropical food anywhere without any real energy inputs once the system's put together. So it can be that complicated. Or it could be just a lot of windows on the southern wall of your house and doing what you're doing a little bit more. But yeah, there's tons and tons of stuff on it. Um, you know, Earthships do this very, very well. An Earthship, basically, you've got your garden inside your house. You don't have a lot of pest problems when you do that either. Uh, you can grow bananas and avocados in your living room. When you use Earthship style technology, and that can be adapted into a lot of things we do with modern building. I just have to say the biggest thing holding this back uh, for most people in conventional housing is I don't see a lot of houses that really have good light flow in our modern, modern, you know, kind of sticking, you know, bricks and sticks build out and, and, you know, cookie cutter housing. Most houses just don't have the light getting into them that you really need to be able to do this really, really effectively. So there's some thoughts on that. And uh, if you Google cold climate permaculture and climate battery, you'll find a lot of things like this. Let's take another uh, call. Jack, I have a question for either you or Darby regarding how to expand a flock. 
Um, some background about uh, last spring, I got some chickens, and they've been a great addition to our family. The kids have learned so much. The kids are starting to take care of them, and we got some fresh eggs in the fall that were just wonderful. But we have made a few mistakes. First of all, I bought the uh, the chickens on Craigslist, and the woman swore they were all hens. About half of them turned out to be roosters. Um, so I've got a couple in my freezer and gave a couple away. So then <clears throat> to try to expand the flock back to full stock, I went to a swap meet at a tractor supply, bought three hens. Uh, two of them died within a week. Um, the other one looks fine. And luckily, the other uh, chickens are fine, so everything's going going well with them. But I'd like to get back to my full number of chickens, uh, and so I want to expand by a couple. I guess I'm wondering, I don't think I can mail order just two chicks in the spring. Maybe I can, but that's kind of an expensive way to go. I have a neighbor with chickens who does have a rooster. I was wondering maybe if I could bring... Uh, a couple of my hens to his rooster or bring his rooster to my hens. I'm just not sure how to do that. Um, or what's the best way? Or if, you know, and introducing them to the, to the rest of the birds too. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jack. Uh, let me say, if I was going to use somebody else's rooster to breed my hens, I, and I probably wouldn't take that approach, but if I was going to do it, I would want to bring their rooster to my hens, not the other way around. If you bring your hens to their rooster, uh, then you're also bringing your hens to his hens, and you've got a whole pecking order issue, conflict thing going on there that's probably not good. And instead of having to retrieve one bird and bring him back over, uh, you have to now retrieve multiple hens and, and bring them back over. And they might need a couple days with each other. Uh, I've never tried this before, but if he's going to breed them, he's going to do it fast. Uh, and it doesn't take long. And you'll know it. And I have to say that, you know, when we see our rooster do this with our hens, it, it, it's generally a morning and evening thing. It just seems like, you know, you let them out of the pen and they go at it. Um, and, uh, and right before they go in for the night, you see some more of it, but it's mostly in the morning. So bringing that rooster over at first light a couple times may get you some fertilization. It may not. I don't know. I've never tried it. Uh, but you could. I wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't rely on my neighbor to have a rooster. If you want to be able to continuously breed your birds, then I would go and I would get myself some cockerels and I would choose a rooster out of them as they mature. And I think having a rooster with your flock is incredibly incredibly useful beyond um, just having uh, the ability to have fertile eggs. A rooster is extremely protective of his flock. It, it helps a lot with predators because a big part of predatory working with your chickens is simply them not being out in the middle of the field like, duh, oh, there's a hawk, boom, right? Okay, so roosters are always on the alert checking things out for their girls. And when they see something, they get that, and, and, and they know, take cover. Um, they'll also, you know, they'll attack shit. They will. I, I, I've seen our guy, we named him Upgrade, which is the name of the pimp on uh, Idiocracy. I've seen him go after our dogs if he just doesn't like what they're doing. But yet he's pretty p calm and placid. He's a Rhode Island red uh, uh, cockerel. He's, 
He's a great rooster. I mean, I can pick him up, and he's not exactly thrilled about it, especially if I do it in front of his girls. He feels a little emasculated, but he doesn't try to spur me or get all nasty or anything. And, you know, we kept the rooster we liked. I mean, that, that's what it came down to. He wasn't maybe the prettiest rooster we had or whatever, but he was the one we liked him. He had a good personality. And I got to say, Orpingtons and Rhode Island Reds make great roosters for your flock no matter what you're running. And I've seen my bird do this, and I've heard Paul Wheaton talk about this, and people that have never seen it don't believe it. But it, it's, it's the case. I've seen this bird run over and find a bug or some really good stuff and step on it to hold it if it's a bug, maybe peck a little bit, and then make a noise and give it to his hens. I, I, would, I would have never believed that. In fact, Paul told me about it before I witnessed it. And um, I don't know, maybe it's because we had a mixed flock and, and multiple roosters when I was a kid, or I didn't care to look. I'd never noticed it before, but this bird does this all the time. And I've heard about other breeds in it, but Rhode Islands and, and Orpingtons are specifically known to have a, a rooster with that level of care. So I might consider that if you want to be able to produce birds. And you might say, well, but once I get my flock to a certain size, I don't want to keep doing it. Well, it don't matter that the eggs are fertilized. If you're picking your eggs up every day and throwing them in the refrigerator, it, it's no different eating a fertilized egg than a non-fertilized. You will not notice. Now, if you leave them sit for a while and you get a, a hen brooding them, you get little chickens coming out and little faces and things like that. And you don't want, but if you're collecting your eggs every day, it's no big deal. It's just not a big deal at all. So you might just consider getting a rooster and solving this problem internally and incubating your eggs. Uh, the, a great incubator is called the Hovabator. Uh, it's inexpensive. It's made out of styrofoam and plastic and a metal heater. Uh, it comes with a terrible thermometer. You want to get a good thermometer that's easy to read, get your temperature stabilized, and you want to invest in an egg turner because you don't want to be in there doing it yourself, and you can incubate some eggs. That said, if you only need a couple chickens, don't do any of this. Other than if you want the rooster for the value he brings to your flock. People say, well, I can't afford roosters because they don't lay eggs. Let me tell you what, feeding one chicken is cheap. And a rooster in a flock earns his keep. Now, if you had a whole flock of ten roosters beating the hell out of each other today and you were just feeding them, they don't give you anything other than meat when you finally kill them. You'd be killing them pretty quick. But a rooster to a flock is an asset. So you might consider it for that. Now, where would I get my birds if I were you? I'm going to assume that if you lost birds from tractor supply, that most likely you did something wrong when you're brooding. Or you got some bad birds. We've gotten quite a few birds from Tractor Supply. We have never lost one in the brooder. And the ones that we lost, we lost two. One, we really think one of the contractors that did some work for us was just a punk and kicked it and killed it and hit it under a pot because she just disappeared uh, on a day he was working here. And there's no way to prove this, so you can't confront him on it. But um, she just disappeared. And it was weeks later I turned over a water bucket and she was underneath it. And I think he, I don't see how she could have got herself under there. So I think he killed her and hit her under there once once he killed her, which just is kind of awful to think that somebody's enough of an asshole to do that when you're paying them to do work on your property. But the other one that we lost, we lost because uh, Charlie was a pup and he wasn't well trained yet and he killed it. So that's nothing to be said bad about the breed or, or tractor supply or anything else. So they were good quality birds. And, you know, the, the truth is when you brood chickens, sometimes you lose some. You, you just do. And, I mean, I would find someone, you know, a lot of times local feed stores have chicks in the spring. 
tractor supply. It has chicks in the spring. And with a small quantity of birds, that's, that's where I would get them. And I, or I, you know, talk to this neighbor that has this rooster about just getting some of his fertilized eggs or some of his chicks. And, and, and that's the approach I would take. Now, there are hatcheries that'll mail you two or three birds if that's what you want. Uh, McMurray, I think, will do it for a fee. And they're a pretty good operation. We've, we've dealt with them. Um, I think Cackle Hatchery will do small orders as well. Uh, I've seen if you get the, the poultry magazine, uh, Backyard Chickens, there's an advertisement in there. I can't think of the company now, but it always says order as few as one chicks. But I think with the shipping, you're going to pay more than it's really worth, you know, than if you want two more birds, go buy four from Tractor Supply. Now, um, a little bit about introducing new birds to a flock. Uh, a lot of times, especially as a flock gets bigger, new birds are really picked on by hens. Uh, new hens are picked on by other hens. And this is part of a roosterless flock. There will always be one dominant bird in your flock, period. If there's no rooster, a hen will become the most dominant hen. And oftentimes, from my you know research and talking to people, that hen will lay very infrequently compared to the other hens. She'll almost become like a, a pseudo-rooster. And uh, that's just because that role needs to be filled. Now, if we have a flock like that and we introduce another woman to a flock of women, uh, that head woman's not exactly appreciative of it, and she's certainly not going to do anything to really kind of protect her from the other ones. But if you have a rooster and you give him some new hens, he's quite content about that, and he is the big dog. He will be in charge. There's no doubt about it. So my experience has been a flock that's going to be expanded will often do better if there's a rooster there. And the new ones will often still kind of be outsiders at first. It'll take them a while to kind of be taken in and to and to want to be part of this new flock. They're with each other. They kind of hang out. We added two, uh, two Freedom Ranger uh, hens to our flock, and they really kind of kept to themselves for like a couple weeks, but there wasn't a lot of problems. And the best way you can do this is when you're ready to introduce your birds, wait till nighttime, Wait till everybody's on the perch going to sleep and just take your birds that are being introduced and stick them on the perch right next to the other birds. And they wake up like, oh, I guess you were here all... I don't like you, but I guess you belong here because you were here when I woke up because they have bird brains. Um, so those are my thoughts. But I would just, if you only want a couple, just get them somewhere locally. Get a few more than you want and uh, and don't really sweat it. I, I don't know that I would try you know, bringing your neighbor's rooster over. I, I, I don't... I don't know that it'll ruin anything, but I think it's a lot more complicated than it needs to be. If you want that capability, consider getting a rooster. And don't be afraid to get a rooster. I think some people are afraid roosters are mean or whatever. You know, get a few. And like I said, let the winner of Mr. Personality live, and the other ones can be named Stew and, and Broiler and, and, and Barbecue. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Mike in Southern Ohio. I have a question about short-term and long-term maintenance for both cover cropping and also chopping and dropping in garden beds. I definitely see the value in these approaches, just not quite sure how to best maintain them. Uh, so I built a few Hugel woody beds inspired by your design and definitely your excellent YouTube videos, and I've heard you and others like Paul Wheaton talk about what's best to plant there. So do you do something to remove or turn under the cover crop so only your desired plants are in the bed in the spring? Or do you let clover, daikon radish, other stuff you recommend stay permanently and then just plant into that? Uh, for chopping and dropping weeds for mulch, especially you know, if I'm going to bring it in from other parts of the property, doesn't that introduce a lot of weed seeds into the bed? 
and then doesn't all this stuff compete with what I planted and really want in there? So not quite sure how to manage that. I guess I'm ultimately debating in my head two pictures, you know, a nice polycultured bed with only beneficial edibles and everywhere else is covered by pretty wood chip mulch that gets weeded all the time or a you know, so-called weed and cover crop infested bed that has my plantings mixed in. So I appreciate your help. Thanks. Well, the answer is always depends, right? So it's really important with cover cropping and, and things and seed mixtures to think about what do I want for this space long term? So if you're building hugel beds and let's say you're going to be putting in, you know, strawberries and raspberries and some small fruit trees and maybe some small nut trees and some other berry bushes and you're going to build a perennial system. There's no reason that you wouldn't use certain things like medic and cover crop. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, medic, which is a plant, black medic or salva medic or white clover or something like that in, in that seed mixture that's part of the cover crop going in to establish that. Other than you don't want to use too much where it'll choke out your plants early and young, you might put it in, cut it back, and then plant into it. Because you're in a perennial system. You're not going to be going in every year planting potatoes or corn or peppers or tomatoes. And if you're going to grow some tomato and pepper in a place like that, it's going to be like, well, there's a space there, so I'll put one in there. So it's not a big deal. If you're going to be doing an annual rotation, then you do not want to use perennial cover crops. right? You're going to use annual cover crops that are going to winter or spring or summer kill. So you have to think about the type of thing versus the application you're putting it into. So like I had a guy one time that said he wanted to establish pasture and he was going to seed a bunch of buckwheat. And I'm like, well, do you want to kill everything? He's like, what? I'm like, it's okay if you do. If you basically want to choke out everything uh, and then plant your own pasture mix, that's fine. But if you have a reasonable pasture you're looking to improve, then you don't want to like, you know, disturb the soil and, and then plant an intensive stand of buckwheat because you're going to kill everything. He's like, well, does it kill everything? Like, it shades everything out. It, 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 it completely overgrows everything, and, and it basically cleans an area out. Now, there's a lot of biomass in there. You can companion plant it with something like cowpea for nitrogen fixation, and then, yeah, you can till that in, and you can really improve an area. And if you have an area that's choked with a lot of plant that you call weeds that you don't want around, if you till it up and maybe run two cycles of buckwheat through it, and then run a winter cover crop into it going into the next year, you're going to have gotten rid of a lot of those weed problems. Some from just shading it out and choking it out, and some from you'll improve the fertility. And a lot of weeds, if you jack up your fertility, the weeds stop germinating. So when you have a lot of weeds germinating in a place, specifically a lot of, of low fertility weeds germinating, you have a fertility issue, not a weed issue. So we can use it to rectify that, but is that what you want to do? So with your hugel beds... The reality is you need to be growing these um, cover crops as a way to establish them, chop and drop them, build biomass, but you need to be thinking, do I want a perennial system or an annual system? And you do not want to be using perennial cover crops in an annual garden bed because you're creating a weed problem, even though it's not really a weed. That, that clover is going to just keep coming back and keep coming back and form a mat. And if you have tree roots underneath it and berry roots underneath it and things like that, well, that's a good thing. It's a living mulch. But if you're going to want to go in there every year and plant into it, you're going to end up you know, having to deal with that. So that's that answer. Now, as far as chopping and dropping weeds, chop 
drop, not chop, and then a big laborious thing to carry to another place and apply. Though you can do that, right? But you're concerned with weeds. If you chop and drop weeds, are we seeding the ground? Not if you chop them before they set seed. And that's, that's the key. Is if you're using, if you're, you're using weed as biomass accumulation and you don't want more of it, when it gets flowers before it goes to seed, chop it then. That's, that's the easy answer to that. Um, most of the time in my beds, when I see a weed, I just pull the whole thing out of the ground by the roots and drop it right where I, I pulled it out of. It's taken nutrient from that spot. It knows what nutrient needs to be bioavailable at the surface. So it's taken that out. So why move it? But I understand, like, you might have a big stand of a lot of organic matter and you want to move that over, but you can compost that, you can process that with chickens, or you can mulch with it. But yeah, if it's a, if it's an invasive weed, a noxious weed you don't want around, you need to use your, now they're talking about time equations. So many things that you do are so critical that they're done at the right time, or more accurately, that they're not done at the wrong time. If you have a weed with a long cycle to seed, like let's say lamb's quarters, you've got from the time that thing's itty bitty to the time it's a great big tree over many, many months where it can be hacked to the ground, chopped up, and fed to animals or mulched or composted. Or no problem. There's no seed. But if you choose to do it when the seed heads are there, you've got like 50 bazillion seeds per plant. And you're going to have a lot more of it next year than you probably want. So it's about not doing things at the wrong time often more than doing them at the right time. Though there is, you got to think about the right time too. So you don't want to go in and chop down a bunch of vegetation and drop it in the heat of summer if it's providing shade to your plants that you want it to provide shade to because now you've opened up the canopy and you bake the crap out of your plants. So you might want to wait a little bit longer. And then is it a weed? If it's a weed and a seed issue, then you've got another situation. So you got to think about all these things. But the biggest thing with your cover cropping is to understand it's not one size fits all. It's not like you got to cover crop everything. It's not like your whole world should revolve around cover cropping stuff. But if you have a bed that's an annual bed and you don't run a winter garden and you don't cover crop it, you're going to have weeds in the, in the spring. Where if you go in and you, you cover crop it with something like, um, winter pea and vetch, it'll grow and it'll it'll die. And you won't really have to deal with it in the spring. It'll be this huge biomass you can just hack down and plant into. But if you plant clovers and uh, plantain and uh, what else am I looking for here? Uh, I'm drawing a blank on one of my favorite things. Uh, chicory, uh, things like that that are perennial in nature, you're, you're going to have them to deal with. So the question is, do I want them there? Do I want them there continuously? And, and again, many times in a perennial system, the answer is absolutely I do. And many times in an annual system, the answer is I don't. So it's really about what you're doing with the bed that you're applying this, this cover crop seed mixture to. Let's take another call. Hi, this is Thesia from Northeast Oklahoma. I have a question about raising chickens for meat. Currently, we have four laying hens housed in a stationary fortress. My husband recently brought home several chicks and a few, a few weeks old. We are in the process of building a chicken coop on an old boat trailer for tractoring around the acreage. With these chicks, I'd like to allow them to naturally reproduce to provide occasional culling for meat. I don't necessarily want to gather these eggs as I have the laying hens. 
will there be non-fertilized eggs lying around among the fertilized eggs that will cause a problem? Is this a logical approach or my way off track? Any input is certainly welcome. Thank you for all you do. Appreciate it. Well, you may be off track. I'm not sure, but I think you are because I can't ask you follow-up questions. And what it sounds to me like you want to do is have a coop, have these birds wandering around. Clearly, if you're going to have fertilized eggs, you're going to have roosters. And you're going to let these birds take care of these eggs. Okay. Probably not going to happen. Unless you get a broody bird, she's probably not going to take care of the eggs. And it's best to isolate your broody bird. So what I mean by that is when a, when a bird goes broody, it's really a good idea to kind of put her in a place where she's left alone by all the other birds so they don't disturb her. And to do something like gather the eggs you want to incubate with her in advance if when you see her starting to go broody. Maybe you want to do a dozen, maybe ten. And when she goes broody, these eggs can sit for a good six to ten days at room temperature. They don't get too cold and they don't get too hot. They just kind of go into a stasis. And they'll all hatch about the same time. And once you get her in her little broody place, you can just stick her eggs there. It almost sounds like you're asking me... Well, if they lay fertile eggs, will they just hatch? And will like some eggs will hatch and some eggs will lay around. What will happen if you're not taking an active role in this, especially with tractoring where the birds are moving all the time, is they're just going to lay eggs and they're just going to sit there and whether they're fertile or not, it's not going to matter. They're just going to sit there and rot. So if what your problem is is they'll be producing more eggs than you can use, then you need to start giving eggs to neighbors and making better neighbors. And I can tell you from experience that works. Okay, so what it sounds like is you want the tractoring primarily for the improvement to the ground. You want these birds working the ground for you. That's great. Uh, you have your egg needs met from another flock that's stationary, and you don't need more eggs. That's fine. So what we're going to have is a byproduct of eggs. And if you want to reproduce, I won't go too deep into this because I talked a lot about that already for another question. But you're going to have to take an active role. You're either going to incubate these eggs or you're going to have a bird go broody. You can put them underneath. And most modern breeds of birds, you don't get a lot of broody hens. You really don't. So that's an issue in of itself right there. So we're going to have an additional output. And that output's going to be eggs. So we can do things with this. If you don't want the eggs... Recycle them into the chickens is one thing you can do. And if you crumble up and crush and break the eggs and let the birds eat them, they will, a chicken will tear an egg up once it's busted open. Now, you can sometimes teach a chicken to eat eggs, and that's not a good thing. But if you take the eggs, put them in like a bucket or something like that, and bust them up and dump it back out to them, to them it's just chicken food. They don't really, they don't really make the connection. You want to bust it up enough where it doesn't look like an egg anymore. It's just this massive shell and goo. They will eat it. It's good for them. It has everything that's necessary to make a chicken, so it has everything a chicken needs. That's one thing. If you have dogs, there is no such thing as too many eggs. Your dogs will gleefully eat all the eggs you can find for them. Most dogs, you can take an egg and crack it on a rock or something on the ground, and they'll just, they'll just tear into it. You don't have to cook it. You don't have to do nothing for them. If you want to put it in their food, though, you know, boil them. And then don't be peeling your dog eggs, man. Just bust it up. Shell it all. Dogs like it. They'll eat it. So that's a dog food option. Or like I said, talk to your neighbors. Do you guys use eggs? And you don't have to buy cartons or anything. Say, look, if you give me a couple cartons, I'll fill them up. And every time I have a full carton, I'll give you some eggs. You'll make some really good friends out of them. 
If you just don't want to jack around with the eggs, you just don't want to, you're like, I already got eggs, I want to be out there picking eggs up or something like that, what you're going to end up with is they're probably going to lay in the coop and you're end up with great big piles of eggs that nobody's taking care of that eventually you're going to have to do something with. There's really no way to get the daggone bird to not lay eggs. That's what they do. It's their purpose in life. Right? So you're going to have the output. It's a matter of determining what you're going to do with it. And like I said, if you think it's like, well, the chickens will hatch the fertile eggs and like kind of kick the non-fertile eggs to the side, which it, I'm not sure you're saying that. It just kind of sounds like it could be. It's not going to happen. Um, and they're not going to be laying around. They're, they're going to, they're going to most likely lay in their coop and you kind of want them to. Now, if you don't really give them a good place in the coop to lay, and if they don't have access to the coop during the day when they're more likely to lay, they'll lay on the ground and there's no reason you can't just leave the eggs lay there and kick them or whatever, but I just think that's going to waste. But you could do it and consider it part of your fertility regime. It's putting uh, calcium and other things in the, back into the soil. So I guess you could do that. But that's my take on it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Brad, cirrhosis of liver on the forum. And just wanted to make a comment about the whole Phil Robertson thing. I think this would be a very good test for libertarians. While Phil does have the right to say what he wants, he also has to accept the consequences. And for people to say that they would boycott A&E to force them to keep them on if they didn't really want to, to me is just as bad as any other group imposing their will on another group in this country. As a libertarian, A&E also has the right to dismiss Phil if they want, especially as an employee. And if they do so, they will also have to accept the consequences. I get this kind of an Anne Ryan way of looking at it, but it works for me. Thanks, Jack. I think you're contradicting yourself a little bit, and because it's contradictory. Um, so I, I put in the, the show notes for this one, um, thoughts on Duck Dynasty's big drama. Fine, I'll say a few words. I mean, I've been hearing about this since this happened back in December. The, 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 the upshot to this whole thing about what this guy said, and I don't even know all he said or didn't say, is I don't care. It doesn't pertain to my life. It doesn't affect me, and I do not give a damn. And I think the whole thing might have been a publicity stunt because for the first time in my life, I saw people buying all the Duck Dynasty crap that was in the stores when this all went on, where it's been there for years. I've never seen one missing out of a space, so I don't even know if it's worth worrying about. Um, I also don't think it's real. The whole show is fake. These guys are a bunch of rich guys uh, that never looked the way they do uh, since they started the show before that, ran around playing golf and going to country clubs and crap like that. So it's a fake show about a fake concept. I don't really care. So that's that's my you know my short answer. Now the whole dynamic though, right? So this guy goes out and says some things, belong in, in concert with his religious convictions and his view of homosexuality, which by the way I don't agree with, but I don't care. It doesn't affect me. A and E freaks out, says we're going to fire you. I think now they've rehired him. I don't know. I don't care. But here the, the caller's assertion is, if you are a fan of this show, and A and E decides they don't like what he said. So you're going to tell them you're not going to watch A&E anymore and boycott A&E, that that's not libertarian. That's completely libertarian. And that's what you ended up with, caller. That's what you said toward the end. You know, like, they have to accept the consequences of their actions, too, just like he does. Absolutely. Do I think he should have been fired? 
I don't care. Do I think it's it's legal and totally within the rights of the network to terminate his contract because they disagree with what he said and how he said it? Absolutely. It's a private business. This is not a government job. He is not entitled to his job. Okay? That's, that's totally okay for an employer to say, what you're doing is not cool as far as I'm concerned, so you can go work for somebody else because you don't work for me anymore. That's fine. That's fine. Do I think it's stupid? Yes. Do I think it's pandering? Yes. Do I, do I think it might have, again, all been a publicity stunt and they were never going to fully fire him? Probably. And I think mostly what happened out of this is the entire audience got played like a fiddle. But when it comes down to these concrete, let's just take Duck Dynasty out of it. If you are an outspoken person and you go out and say something completely counter to the belief systems of the people that you're working for, and they say to you, if you really are that person, we don't want you working here anymore, is that okay? I think it is. Now, is it also okay that if that information is leaked into a small or large community, be it a small town or a whole nation through a national television program, and the people that have been customers of that organization say, really? Oh, well, if that's how you really feel, that's so far from what I believe that I'll choose to no longer do business with you. That's okay, too. It's called a free market system. And A&E will be just fine, and these Duck Dynasty dudes who are completely fake, by the way, will also be just fine. And again, I'm done with this one because don't care. And I think, America, if you do, you got played. I think the whole thing was planned. I think A&E knew exactly who they were dealing with when they hired them. I think the whole thing was actually a designed play. And I think the show's more popular now than ever because, once again, being fake in this world that we have today, when properly angled and marketed and people's emotions are channeled against them, sells. You've been sold to. That's all that's happened to anybody following this thing along. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Nathan in Texas again. I called in the question about the Bitcoin. Uh, I think I wasn't very clear. And part of my question was, from my understanding, it takes a lot of computer power to do the, to run the system and the transactions. From what I understand, at least I might be wrong, the reason that the Bitcoins are mined is to get people to use their computers to run the program. And that's the incentive is they get a Bitcoin and and, and that's the only reason that uh, the mining system was set up. And th there didn't need to be all these computers helping to run the software. There would have just, you know, be 20 million Bitcoins um, just kind of thrown out there. And when all the Bitcoins are mined or it becomes pointless to mine them, there won't be any uh, uh, any computers running the software because there won't be that incentive there. Maybe I'm completely wrong on this. I, I, I was just curious about it. Um, Anyway, maybe you can elaborate a little more. Thanks. Um, I, first of all, I think that anybody that's really struggling with Bitcoin should watch a, a video of Stefan Molyneux explain Bitcoin in a very, very elegant way, very, very philosophical way, very, very accurate way, the way Stefan generally does with just about anything. So I'll put a link to that video in today's show notes. I think it's like 30 minutes long or something like that. And it will dispel a lot of the myths and misconceptions about Bitcoin when you hear Stefan explain it. Then I, then, and I think he'll do a better job than me. And obviously I can't put 30 to 40 minutes into a, a show like this to answer one question. So 
Uh, I'll leave some of that left unsaid. But now I understand your question better. Okay, here's the reality, and I learned this last week when I answered your first question, which was, what happens when the last Bitcoin's mined? And my point was, it's not a problem because at that point, we fractionalize the Bitcoin further and further down to make sure there's enough to meet demand. But your question is more to, well, then how does all of this stuff work without everybody's computer going to work? And the reality is, miners right now do two functions, and in the future, they'll do pretty much one function. What they do right now is they actually generate Bitcoins. They mine them. And the reason they, that they do this, the reason they just didn't say, okay, there'll be 20 million or 200 million Bitcoins or whatever it's going to be, the cap, and we'll just make them all at once. You flood the market too fast, too many. It, it doesn't work before, so that it exceeds demand. And they wanted to make it like money. So there had to be an energy equation. So the computer has to do a very complex mathematical formula to mine Bitcoins. So the miners mine Bitcoins, yes. But the other thing they do is through the blockchain, they verify, validate transactions. So when you send me a Bitcoin, it runs through somebody's computer. You're right. Well, they don't do that for free. There is a, a, a charge for that to happen. Now, it's compared to a Visa or MasterCard or PayPal charge, it's very low. It's a very, very low charge. But once somebody's set up doing this, They're basically getting Bitcoins every day, not just for finding Bitcoins out of nowhere, you know, mining the coin. They're also validating, you know, thousands or even eventually millions of transactions for which they're paid in Bitcoin. So that incentive is there to keep the mining operations going for as long as Bitcoin is viable. So that's, that's the short answer to that. And again, I just recommend you check out Stefan Molyneux's, uh, a f a fabulous explanation of Bitcoin, the whys, the hows, the whats, and everything about it. Probably the best I've ever heard. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Hey, Jack. This is Pat from Eastern North Carolina. Got a question about neighbors. Somebody recently bought the lot next door to me. And the one of their outbuildings is on my property. We have uh, the complete property is fenced in, and they don't want to move it. I don't know. Uh, I don't really want to get uh, lawyers involved, and I want to have happy neighbors because they might live here for a while, and I'm not looking to make enemies. Here are the details. It was uh, one piece of family land. It was divided up, and uh, when my grandfather died, somebody else bought the other lot, and there were just outbuildings everywhere. And so now there's this one building that my fence busts up to on each side, and I'd like to have uh, this little corner of my property back. What would you do? Thank you. Well, let me say right now, unless this building is like 1,800 square feet or something like that, if it's a typical small outbuilding, a 10 by 10, you know, 10 by 15, something like that, in the end, I would let it go if nothing else is, is, is resolvable between you and the neighbor. I would not ruin a relationship with a neighbor over this. The fact of the matter is, it's been that way since you moved in. And when you moved in, that neighbor wasn't there. And it wasn't a problem until this neighbor moved in, and now it's a problem. So some of that is on you. Uh, you may not like me saying it that way, but the truth is some of it's like you had an opportunity to do something about this before that guy moved in and you didn't do it. So it was like, oh, it's okay, but now someone's there and using it. Now I got There's a psychological thing there that you need to challenge yourself with. But on the, on the other side of it, you're right. It's, it's, it's not, if, if it's his building on your property, 
then doing something about it is a reasonable request. And basically what it sounds like you want to do is shove it over onto his side of the property and fill the fence in and get that piece of land back because it's your land. If he doesn't want to do it, I would ask him this then. It is on my property. Can we agree upon that? Well, yeah, I think anybody that's reasonable would say that. Well, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do about it? Not, hey, well, what do you think we should do about it? Huh? What's wrong with you? Get it off my... No, no, no. Like, I want access to my property. Your building's on my property. We both know that's the case. That legally, I own the land where your building's sitting. And I want what I want, and you want what you want. What do you think a reasonable solution is? I'll tell you one reasonable solution. You, you don't want to move it? Well, how about this? How about I cut a door on the piece that's on my side, wall off the door on your side, it's my building? Well, I don't want that. Oh, well, then what do you think we should do? Right? This is a, like, you know, would you be okay if I went somewhere else and cut a hole in the fence and built a building on your land that you didn't have access to and you couldn't use? And, and, and took back an equal amount of property off of your property? Would you would you be okay with that? And just making the person understand it as though, wait a minute, uh, no, I don't want you doing that. And, and you make me very clear, I'm not saying I'm going to. I'm just saying, would you be okay with that? Well, no. Well, how is this different? Well, it was already there. That's not really how it's different. But if you can't resolve it, Honest to God, I would just, if you're worried that the building will fall down in class, I just extend the fence on the other side of it, right through, and maybe, you know, fence it around or whatever to make sure it's secure. And I'd go on with life and I'd live with it. I would not ruin a relationship over it. Let me tell you a story. My great uncle, this is a guy named Pete, he was uh, my, my grandmother's brother, and her family. Family that my grandfather was from, and the family who lived one house up the road were all from the same village in the Ukraine. All of the families came here in the 1890s at the exact same time, and a lot of the family and their ancestry still lives in a little place called Jonestown near Minersville, Pennsylvania. There's still a lot of people there that, when you trace back their family history, they're still related, and, and I'd say quarter of quarter of this little bitty town is somehow related to one of these three families. So obviously there's some history there. And some really big-time kinship. I mean, you've got members of both, members of both of these, all three of these families have married into each other's families. But my Uncle Pete, my great-uncle Pete, and uh, this family named Debsky, who was the third family, um, up the road, and it was my, my, my grandfather's, my great uncle's, and the Devsky family in order up the road. Each had about, you know, acre and a half, two acres of land. There's this stone wall. The hand stacked stone wall separated my uncle Pete's property from the Devsky family's property. It was only about 25 feet long. I don't know who put what where, but basically this whole piece of property back when the families first started to settle it, they built houses here and there on it and, and broke it up themselves. And somewhere along the way, it became a dispute. Now, I don't even know where it started. But that stone wall was five feet 
wrong. Five feet wrong. It was supposed to be five feet north or five feet south. And nobody even knows anymore which one did it first, but one of them completely took it down and moved it and re-erected it. And then the other one moved it back. They don't talk to each other. Well, they're both passed away now, but for years and years, for decades, they refuse to speak to each other. And nobody really caused any problems for each one another, and it was such an unused part of both of their properties that it would go for a year and not be moved, and then one of them would get the ass one day and start moving it. And if the other one saw them, they wouldn't do anything. They'd wait till they were finished, and they would move this wall back. And those rocks probably went back and forth 20 times in 40 years. And two people whose families share a history going back to the 1890s, coming from the old country together, refuse to speak to each other over a five-foot discrepancy 25 feet long that neither one was really going to use for anything other than grass they had to mow. Do not... Do not let that occur here. And I do challenge you to think about the fact of why was this not an issue for you until this family moved on to the property? It seems like during that period of time, you could have done something. But now that somebody's using it, it's just kind of a, like sticking in your craw. Like, yeah, that's my land. You know, and are you starved for land? Are you sitting on a very small piece and that's a really important thing to you? And then maybe you need to be a little bit more assertive and look, we got to do something here. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do. They don't want to move it. Do they really not want to move it or do they not want, they not know how to move it? Does it seem complicated and expensive? Is it important enough to you that you could go to them and say, listen, I need this piece of land. This is my property. I don't want to involve authorities. I understand how you, I understand where you're coming from. I don't want to take your building from you. That's not what this is about. But I do want that piece of land for other purposes. I know it doesn't seem like a big deal to you, but again, if I built a, a, a building on your land, how would you feel about it? Well, I probably wouldn't like it. Okay, fine. So here's my proposed solution then. What if I hire some people? and pay them to move it over to your side of the property, and pay to have the fence done, and you don't have to do anything at all except have the building empty the day that they come to move it. Because it seems like it's most likely that that's the case. Now, is this thing in the ground? I mean, are there you know beams going in there? Is this thing attached? Or is it a more conventional outbuilding that you know, is a half-day project to move? If this thing's a permanently built structure... And it wasn't important enough to you to do something about it before somebody was using it. Then maybe you need to look at just living with it. Because now it's a complicated thing. It's not so easy anymore. I could still come up with another solution. You might not like it. Again, we cut a door frame on your side. We'll close up their side. And you provide them with a building of about the same size on their property somewhere instead of moving it. Because maybe moving it is complicated. I don't understand how they own the building that's on your property in the first place 
Anyway, though. Now, there's a lot of people out there saying, well, just take the damn thing down. It's on your property. Again, you're going to live with these people for a long time. You've got to be gentle here. But I think my my question would be, would you be okay if this situation was the other way around and you wanted it off your property and I told you no? And if they say yes, say really, well, I kind of like a building too. Can I build one on your property that abuts my fence? <laughs> just kind of be don't be nasty about it though. Just kind of like, dude, listen seriously. Is it is this really would be okay with you? Because they're probably gonna go, well, no, okay, I get, okay. So what do you think we should do to resolve this? Do you think I should just live with the fact that your building's on my property with no type of solution whatsoever? That there's nothing for you to give or take in this. And most reasonable people are going to go, well, yeah, I don't really know. And be okay with I don't know. That's a step in the right direction. So, well, let's see if we can figure this out. And I think I think we can figure it out together. We can come up with some kind of solution. Maybe the solution is you guys share the building. Maybe the solution is you put a door on your side. And you say, this side is, and do it just from the door jams over. This side is mine, this side is yours. We keep this in the middle open. And maybe then you have some storage space for some other things. I don't know, man. But I, I do, I do have a real issue with this. That it was, it was totally, this is the, and this is a very, the reason I'm even spending so much time at the very last question with this, this simple question is, this is a very important question for those of us that consider ourselves libertarians, minarchists or anarchists. This is a very important question. You want less involvement from government. This is a this is a far more emotional question than a practical question. It's not like the guy's pulling eggs out of your refrigerator or something like that. True theft. He bought into something. That's the way it was when he bought it. You let it be that way. Now you've got a conflict that needs a peaceful and socially equitable resolution. And just saying, well, this is what the law says is not a way to drive that home. So this is a, this is a problem that at least on some level you have created for yourself. So now you have to think about how to resolve it. But that's that's my thing. I try to have the guy over for a beer, have him sit down in the living room, make it really comfortable, and just say, "Look, dude, I really now this is an issue for me. How are we going to?" But in the end, unless it's really intrusive, I'd let it go. Or you might spend the next 10 years, metaphorically, or 20 years, or 30 years, or 40 years, moving a stone wall back and forth for no good reason, on land you're not even going to do that much with. Or it might be a really important thing. Then you need to figure out how to resolve it peacefully and without involving the man, if there's any way to do that. Because I'll tell you what, if you do, You'll never speak to each other. And there may come a time when you guys really need each other. Never forget the importance of community. Now, if they're just jerks, you may be left with no alternative then than to pursue some type of legal recourse. But please do everything you can to do this fairly, equitably, reasonably. And with a concern for the other party, first, there are so many things that would get handled so much better 
if they were handled this way. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Show you.